Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? So, good day. We'd like to welcome Shoreline's listeners to this, the next in the series of Maritime Risk Podcasts. Today we'll be discussing the thorny subject of bribery at sea and how that affects the ship owners, their masters and their crews in their ship operations at sea to different parts of the world. We're joined by some experts in this issue. We have our colleagues from Control Risks and their nominated speaker today is John Bray who has a wealth of experience in this particular area of law. John is based in Singapore and we'll be speaking to John shortly. We also have some new colleagues from a network called Maritime Anti-Corruption Network. We have Cecilia Muller-Torbrand and we have Vivek Menon who will be introducing themselves and the good work of MACN very shortly. In preparing for this podcast, it took me down a bit of a trip down memory lane and took me back to the time when I might join my first ship back in 1983 as a green ship deck officer cadet, a raw recruit, with dreams of the, the romance of a, a career at sea. And it wasn't long into that uh, first trip to sea that I realized that uh, one of the essential tasks in my task book that I had to become very proficient at was the, the errand down to the bonded store with the, the bonded store key to pick up cartons of cigarettes or bottles of Johnny Walker Black Label, which made things a little easier on board and facilitated our passage through certain port state controls, certain inspections, certain pilotage waters. And it seemed to be the done thing. The asymmetry of the risk and reward was quite apparent. The cost of cigarettes and alcohol at that time was very cheap. The risk of delay in the ship was very expensive. We felt fairly dislocated from our home office, being at sea, but with the only means of communication being telex, fax, or the written letter. And we had the competing issues of agency, employment, and fiduciary responsibility to manage from a senior officer's perspective. And I listened to a recent uh, recording by the Centre for Seafarers Research, I think it's called, in Cardiff, where they spoke to many serving seafarers. And those tensions still seem to apply, certainly a lot of the third world senior officers who have concerns over employment concern themselves perhaps unduly from a Western perspective that they may lose their jobs if they don't facilitate and avoid delay through the payment of uh, cigarettes and alcohol when requested to do. But anyway, more of that was just my sort of ramble down memory lane and it's created some interesting memories for me. So first and foremost, as we delve into this subject, I'd like to hand over to Cecilia if you could make introductions on behalf of yourself and Vivek, and then also the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network. So over to you, Cecilia. Thank you so much, Thomas. So my name is Cecilia Miller-Torbrand, and I am the Executive Director for an industry-led initiative called the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network. I have a team with me that are based in Copenhagen, and Vivek is a member of my team, and he will speak a bit later in the podcast. MACN is an industry initiative that started around 2011 based on 
I think there were different factors that enable us to get started and thinking from this from an industry perspective. One of the things was, of course, the UK Bribery Act that just entered into force in 2010 and 11 and created a lot of attention on the subject. Shipping companies all around the world were taking this in and trying to understand how does this fit our operation and what can we do. And when you like enforcing a policy to captains who've been sailing all around the world, as I think you just mentioned in the introduction, there are three very burning questions that comes back from them in terms of how do we do this successfully. And that is really what are our competition doing about this? If we are the only ones or of a few that says no and everybody else continues uh, the same practices and saying yes to potential demands, then what are we exposing ourselves to? How are we actually going to create a sustainable change? <clears throat> there was also a lot of uh, focus, how are governments dealing with these issues? Both governments who have very wide legislation and extensive legislation, such as the UK bribery who we just into into force, but also governments who have <clears throat> who, who has high corruption risk, how are they dealing with this subject? And then finally, I think there was a mindset in the industry, this has been going on for so long, how can we really change? I don't see the change really happening. So in order to meet those concerns, a handful of companies said, could we just gain by collaborating? Could we gain by having an industry approach to these issues? So we were about eight companies that met in the first meeting, really brainstorming, do we have the same hotspots? Are we faced with the same type of issues? Which as in shipping is quite, it's different if you are a bulk tank or container, but it was quite interesting in that initial mapping that regardless what kind of sector you're from, it's still the same hotspot countries and it's the same type of issues that you face. So that was setting the, the starting point for MACN. <clears throat> and we early on in the process decided that we needed to have a, we needed to have a takes two to tango approach, which meant that we needed to both engage with the industry, but we also needed to find ways to work with governments and push their agenda and work with us in finding solutions to this burning issue. About 10 years down the line, almost 10 years, we are 140 companies in the network. We are representing around 50% of the world's tonnage. So we can really see that the industry had a genuine interest in addressing this, both on an individual basis, but definitely also as an industry. Thank you for the introduction, Cecilia. You've touched upon the development of MACN over the last few years, and it's very impressive the number of companies that are now buying into the, the not-for-profit service that you provide and the good work that you're doing to try to create sustainable change. You touched briefly upon some of the rules and regulations by uh, mentioning in passing the Bribery Act. Are there any other legal frameworks, international conventions, any guidelines from the IMO on this issue that have evolved over the last years, uh, last few years, certainly since I've been at sea? Yes, I think it's important to remember that <clears throat> shipping companies, it is, we're looking at co corruption risk, shipping, the shipping industry is quite exposed if you're looking how we operate. So we have, we operate in <clears throat> high risk countries. There's a lot of government interactions when the ship enters into the ports, there are multiple government interactions that is needed in order to get the vessels cleared or the cargo cleared. <clears throat> we also often operate in very remote areas of countries. So there is a lot of risk factors into our operation and we operate in multiple jurisdictions. So there's 
if you're looking at that from a risk perspective, there's a lot of things that we needed as an industry to be concerned about. Looking at the general framework that is out there, references, we can see that countries are also quite picking up on this agenda more and more. Also, their national requirements, it's not only like the US and the UK who's just pushing their agenda. We also see more fossil regulation coming out of countries like Brazil and China and other. So we see that the world is getting stricter in terms of enforcing an anti-corruption compliance framework. But looking how that fits into the more international agenda, I would say that we have conventions that countries have been needed to adopt for a long time. We have the OECD convention, we have the UN convention on anti-corruption that kind of sets the framework. But in terms of the U in terms of the body that the shipping industry kind of relates to the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, they took on this agenda about three years ago. And this was really, I must say, I must give a lot of appreciation to the traditional organizations who've been in working in shipping for many years at the FIMCO, International Chamber of Shipping. But about three years ago, MSCN partnered with International Chamber of Shipping to try and see what can we gain if we get all these industry bodies together and try to address this as a subject at the IMO. Because <clears throat> IMO had, in the past, hasn't been particularly active on this subject, and we felt it was really important that this conversation starts to also happen on IMO level. About three years ago, I would say MSN has been already successful in engaging in-government relationships on a national level, but somehow we needed to anchor that on the international forum, which was a natural place that, of course, was at the IMO. We submitted a paper just trying to highlight this, this is action issue. What is maritime corruption? How does it affect trade? How does it affect the government? And how does it affect the industry? And three years down the line, IMO has really taken the approach now. They are developing a guide that is currently, yeah, that is under development where they will tackle and they will address what is actually required, both from member state, but also under industry bodies on how you should address maritime corruption. And this is, of course, a very important milestone, both for the subject itself, but also for the industry to get this formally recognized. And it fits very well with MSCN's way of working. I'd be happy to explore that the, and how we work as well. Okay. Thank you for that, Cecilia. Vivek, we met really when I saw a very helpful webinar that you conducted with Cecilia some time ago. And I was very impressed with the wealth of data that MACN have managed to collect on this very difficult subject. I think the shipping industry always has problems collecting data sets that are in, in, instructive in terms of trend analysis and give us the ability to assess the size and extent of a problem the industry may be facing. But I think in your sort of anonymous reporting um, uh, scheme that you have with your uh, member companies and the officers and crew within those companies, you really have tapped into a, a rich seam of information that certainly seems to support the initiatives that MACN are trying to drive thought forward with their members and, and government bodies. So I just wonder if you might want to talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing in this area, which is informing your sort of direction of travel within MACN. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tom, and it's good to be here. You're right. It's important to collect uh, useful information in order to work very closely with the respective countries, whether it's governments or key stakeholders. And the way MACN does that is by having this anonymous incident reporting system. In other words, uh, what anyone can do, it could be a master on board a vessel or any seafarer on board a vessel, operators from shipping companies uh, who represent them, or anyone who have 
experienced a demand on board the vessel, that means if they have faced a risk or an exposure to such demands whenever they call a port or a terminal in any country, they can report that in. And over almost 10 years now, we've been collecting this uh, incident reports. We have uh, data going back to 2011. It was first launched in 2013, but we have data collected from 2011. So it's almost uh, 10 years of data that we have. It's uh, quite extensive. It is more than 41,000 incidents, as I last checked, and it covers almost 149 countries. So it's almost like a pandemic, so as to speak. We are in another pandemic this year, but this data covers major continents. It covers uh, more than 1,100 ports. And uh, the top 10 countries from where the incidents have been collected accounts to around 50% of the incidents over time. So that's quite a lot of data specifically on this context that we are in when we look at corrupt demands faced by seafarers in various ports and terminals. And of course, the data, if you look at the trend, has changed over time. There has been uh, some decline in data since 2017, 2018, specifically this year. With the advent of COVID-19, we have seen a reduction in, in incidents. And that has also that has happened because we, we see a reduction of officials visiting vessels and also an increase in the number of electronic systems in, in carrying out vessel clearance processes. So therefore, there's been a, a decline in number of incidents that vessels have faced. And having said that, we also see that the, the key actors who engage in such practices the top five actors, if I may put it that way, they are close to 75% of the demands are created by either customs, port agents, pilots. In some cases, we also see port health authorities and immigration authorities. Some of these are the key uh, stakeholders who ensure that the vessel is cleared before they even can start operations. So, for as you may know, port health provides a quarantine clearance. Therefore, the vessel can fly the yellow flag and then the remaining set of officers from the other agencies come on board and then carry out their own inspections. But we've also seen a growing number of in, uh, incidents on port state control related cases as well. So that is something that we have recently seen an increase in such incidents being reported. And if you then see what kind of demands are they asking for, primarily it's, uh, it's on cigarettes, almost two thirds of our demands reported into the incident data is uh, on cigarettes. We also see cash payments. Requests for cash is also uh, a common practice. However, they are quite small. And looking at all this data, it's quite evident to also see where MSCN can focus on. And this is where we work very closely with the membership to identify what we call hotspots around the world. We have identified 11 countries which, which have posed a serious problems for seafarers. And, and therefore, we are able to use this information that is provided by the uh, industry to work in what we call a classic collective action work. That means we try and engage with the governments, with civil society and the private sector to find common solutions uh, to mitigate this. So the data part is very crucial for MACN to identify hotspots and what kind of demands are being met. And more importantly, what happens when a demand is not met? i.e. If, if they reject, what then happens? What is the consequence? And many of the times it's delays to vessels. It can also be a threat to master. In some cases, we've seen that they threaten the master and the crew, but mainly it's been delay of vessels. 
So that is what our data really shows. I hope that answers the, the question that you're looking for. No, no, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you, Vivek. And clearly from listening to you and being party to your webinar, I mean, a lot of the good work is conducted through clear advocacy of the issues with government bodies, lob lobbying within certain regulatory frameworks to try and create sustainable regulatory change around the issue and provide a legal framework that will help support the ship's master and crew to do the right thing in many respects. But of course, although much of this now is done remotely, I do, I do remember that you talked about some resources that you had established within the Nigerian territory to create local advocacy and support of stakeholders within that jurisdiction. I don't know whether you could maybe elaborate a little bit on the work that you're doing within country, as it were. Yeah, definitely. Nigeria has been one of our flagship countries, so as to speak. The work started about eight years ago, 2012, where we worked closely with our members and UNDP and also the Nigerian government, who wanted to understand the problems in the ports and terminals more specifically. So a corruption risk assessment was carried out, and based on this assessment, certain integrity plans were laid out. And one among uh, many of the integrity plans was to find a method to have a grievance reporting system. Uh, and I'll come to that a little bit uh, in detail. But what, another thing was very important was to standardize all the operating uh, procedures, all the procedures in the sense when a government official comes on board, whether they're port health, immigration, or customs, what are the procedures they need to follow needed to be standardized? Because it seemed to us that in Nigeria is a big country, large coastline, many ports and terminals. Every port and terminal, whoever came on board, had their own set of procedures that was being applied. And as you rightly mentioned, vessels call various countries, various procedures, various rules and regulations. That itself provides a room for seeking such demands and incorrect practices. So therefore, it is important to standardize these procedures, which we, together with the help of the respective authorities, we managed to do that. What that also meant is ships can now look into those SOPs, as we call them, standard operating procedures, and make sure that they are well prepared before they call the ports. And this is where the journey starts. You need to be well prepared. Usually ships are, but now they have clear, transparent procedures where they can be guided by. And based on that, when they call a port, they also report to what we call a local help desk that was part of the integrity plan that was built. What the help desk simply does is collects information from the vessel prior to arrival. That means who comes to port, which port, the name of the vessel, and if there was a port agent that was assisting the, the vessel, they also collect that information. With that, we are able to prepare the vessel even better. In other words, when they come to a port or terminal, if there's an issue, they can activate this help desk. If there is an available phone number and an email address, they can use. And with the help of uh, this local help desk, they can solve any demands or any similar incidents that are happening while an inspection is going on. So that is more or less like a live help that's provided in Nigeria. And this has worked very closely with the Nigerian government. There is a body called the Nigerian Shippers Council who oversees this process. They are the economic regulators for the ports and terminals. And it's in their interest to ensure that there are no bottlenecks in, in the ports and terminals to improve their services that they provide to any user of the port. So a ship 
coming with cargo, whether to load or discharge, is a user of the port. So the shippers council will ensure that there are no problems and no bottlenecks that they face. Therefore, by activating the help desk, you're also activating the government agency that will provide this help. And in other words, if there is a case, if there is a non-compliance of the standard operating procedures, you are now as a master or a company, not only able to say no to the authority that is demanding this, but also escalate it. You are now able to escalate with a system that is supported by the Nigerian government and they provide a remedy for that escalation. So there's a full case management or a case management and case closure process that happens today in Nigeria. And we have seen very many of our members have started to use this and made have made a use of it and found success in this in this system that we have. We call it the local help desk in in Nigeria and we are aiming to have similar set up in other countries as well. But the success in Nigeria comes with collaboration, very much collective action work, which involves the governments, which involves civil society and the involvement of uh, seafarers and shipping companies. So uh, without which we wouldn't have been successful is what I would like to say. Thank you, Vivek. Yeah, that's very commendable on the part of the Nigerian government and a, and a good news story in, in many respects. The, the, the sort of tripartite relationship, as you say, between the government, the civil society and the commercial operation coming together to seek fundamental change is, is good news for sure. And, and it may be a good opportunity to switch across to, to control risk now and, and John Bray, as many of our readers will our listeners, I should say, will know. Shoreline collaborates with Control Risks. They are the preferred response response consultant on our crisis response insurance product. And they have a global team of experts responding to all manner of incidents at sea. The policy we have seeks to try and uh, mitigate the issues of delay for one reason or another that a ship owner may face within his ship owning operation. And Control risks, they issue frequently hotspot risk maps in terms of, amongst other things, corruption around the world. And I think this really echoes where you're coming from, Vivek, in terms of that collaboration and that buy-in from the governments within country to really seek change and to change the image of the country in many respects from bad to good and as a good place to trade. I think it's important for, for our listeners to really hear a story from the coalface, as it were, John, and I know that you've been involved in some shipboard incidents around the issue of, of bribery and potential delay. So perhaps you could give a brief introduction of your experience in this area of work and, and perhaps walk us through one such case study. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. So first of all, I'd like to echo and endorse very much what we I've been hearing earlier, first from you, Tom, about the asymmetry of the, of, the, of the shipping industry, the actual demands may seem to be quite simple, cigarettes or whiskey, the cost of not paying can be very high. And, and secondly, the whole point about collective action. I, I, I think collective action is crucial here. However, companies have to take responsibility individually. And some points about what that means. First of all, it does mean risk assessment, thinking about the hotspots not just the spots, but the details, the consequences, particular procedures. Secondly, it's preparing the crew. And preparing the crew doesn't mean just giving them an anti-bribery presentation by PowerPoint or by Zoom. It means giving them a credible assurance that you will help them if they're in trouble. 
that there will be some kind of response and that you will back them if they refuse to pay and there are commercial consequences. With that in mind, the story I have is a middle level story. It's not a high drama, it's a medium drama. And, and I think for that reason, it's realistic. It, it, it could be the kind of thing that almost any company would come up with. It's actually a story from not so far from here, uh, a neighboring country. I can see it from my window, Indonesia. And the story is about a ship which needed urgent repairs. It had to put into port to conduct those repairs. There was a local agent, and the local agent took care of the immigration arrangements, assured them that they had 60 days. Time is of the essence in so many of these issues. In this case, they were well in time. They did the repairs in 38 days. They were therefore preparing to put out to sea again, job done, problem solved, but then a new problem came up. Uh, they were told that actually they had overstayed. Their, their permit had run out in 30 days, and that meant that they were eight days overdue, and they had to pay a fine, 21,000. 21,000 is more than cigarettes, whiskey, quite substantial, certainly substantial for individuals. There was also a hint. These things are usually a hint. Sometimes they're more brazen that maybe they could solve the problem in another way. There would have been always in these situations, there is a temptation to try and find another solution, another informal payment, less than 21,000. In this case, the crew contacted their headquarters and they contacted us. In, in, in a situation like that, in, in, in our language, a response situation, one, one of the classic sets of questions you ask is what do you know but what are you assuming so often there's a temptation to confuse assumptions and knowledge so the first thing to find out was what what actually is the situation in this case we sent not me but one of my colleagues an indonesian with legal training he talked to the agent he talked to the immigration authorities and what he found out was that actually they were at fault. Their permit had run out of th after 30 days. The agent was at fault because the agent could have renewed it and should have renewed it. Since he hadn't, there was a fine and 21,000 was actually the right, the right number. So our advice, which the company followed, was to pay the 21,000 to go the straightforward legal route, not to pay under the table. Of course, we wouldn't advise that. We wouldn't advise that because it's against the law, because if you do try and um, negotiate, you typically get higher demands rather than lower demands you might pay and then still get stuck. So they did that. They got out, problem solved at a price, not a completely happy ending, but a reasonably happy ending. What we would also, of course, advise on a case like that is, well, having been through the experience, what do you learn? The lessons are, I think, obvious to us, but let me underline them. It's risk assessment again. It's particularly risk assessment of third parties, of agents. So agents are supposed to help you. If they're good agents, they do help you. 
they get you out of problem, get you out of trouble, but you need to get the right ones. So, so that's going to be a, a running theme. Uh, that's not the last story we've heard. I'm sure we will hear other stories like that through MACN. I'm sure that the industry collectively is learning and accumulating these lessons, and, and that's a great way forward. Thank you, uh, John. Very illuminating. Yeah, and I think the silver lining to the advances in communication, certainly since I've been at sea, it does engender a degree of much closer collaboration now between the shipboard staff and their shoreside contemporaries. They now have immediate access through the means of voice communication to their, to their home office, and they can work collaboratively on these issues. I think in the past there was a sort of self-sufficiency about the shipboard master and, and a, a sort of call to action to make things go away and, and get things done as expeditiously as possible. He was under, under an obligation of utmost dispatch by his charterers, acting on charterers' orders. He's well cognizant of the issues of damage, uh, damages for delay by way of demurrage, dispatch, etc., and uh, I think the ability now really and the speed of communication has blurred that division between the shipboard and the shore-based staff. There's a much more collegiate approach. It did very much feel when I was at sea, it was us, us and them. I'm sure that's now disappeared to a large extent. And that collegiate approach, as we've heard from MACN, seems to be extending beyond the, the ship's rail and, and the confines of the owner's office now to a greater degree of collaboration between ship-owning companies themselves and then through the advocacy of MACN into local government offices and governments around the world. So maybe we could just round off this very interesting podcast, really. If we can go back to Cecilia and you could maybe t- tell us about the way in which you engage with your members, how in fact ship-owners can become members of uh, MACN if they want to, and also maybe touch upon how ship seafarers, if they wish to get involved in some form of collective action and or anonymous reporting can do. I don't know whether their ownership companies have to be part of the network or whether anybody could submit, for example, a anonymous report. So maybe if we could just round up with that would be fantastic. So back to you, Cecilia, if I may. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. So in the membership, we have a value chain approach. And I think this is so important and part of the success. When a value chain approach, I mean that everybody has a role to play and a responsibility to take. John was alluding to individual responsibility, and we try to also articulate that in the membership, such as we have cargo owners, we have ship owners as members, we have ship management, we have port agents, we have P&I clubs, we have flag registries, part of the membership. So when we're engaging in countries and we're trying to set standards and move things forward, we, can ask, we do it as in, in a collaborative way. There's an additional benefit to that. It's also because... I think as humans, you tend to blame someone who's not in the room. It's just easy to point fingers when they're not there. But as you bring them along and allow them to have a seat at the table, you can become quite constructive quite quickly. And that was a whole ambition with the industry dialogue that we are able to see like port agent and ship owners and ship management are actually working more as a team now in the membership, which which I think is, is a success. We shouldn't undervalue because that's a really important element. And then secondly, of course, the the big part of the puzzle, which is missing here, is, of course, if we don't get governments to the table. And I think that's what Vivek was saying, that this is 
a success we've done in Nigeria as we've done in many other countries, in countries that no one thought this was possible and everybody was telling us like, you cannot change anything, so high risk, this would never be possible. And we've been able to move the needle significantly in many of these countries and come up with practical solutions that is workable for the industry. So this is just a quick quote to say, the more the merrier, 50% of the world's tonnage is, we're really happy to see that type of engagement. And I also use that quite a lot to praise the industry because in a lot of other dialogues and forums, we might, right, we may be seen or come across as a conservative traditional industry. And this is actually one in the compliance community, like within anti-corruption dialogues and conversations, MSN is actually being lifted as the one of the most strongest industry collective actions that is out there today. So I think actually the shipping industry has a lot to be proud of and the membership has a lot to be proud of that they are part of actually thinking in an innovative, maybe non-traditional compliance program kind of way because they are very practical. The more people that say no, the easier it will be for the captains to stand in, in front of the heat. So that should be really encouraged. And, and members, these stakeholders that I just mentioned in the beginning are welcome to become an MSCM member. They can contract the sec- they can contact the secretariat, and then there is a onboarding process together with the steering committee, who is also member representatives who engage with the company, trying to make them <clears throat> really understand that this is a commitment uh, that you are making. You may not have to have a perfect compliance program. I think that's very important to say that because. Part of our job is also that we provide tools and guidance um, on how they can embark on the good ethical journey and how they can progress on the good ethical journey. So we have companies who work with us and compliance for many years that are, I would call them front drivers, but we also have companies who are really (coughs) taking the first stab in. We want to make sure we make it right because we can see there's a benefit for our company in terms of risk reduction and there's a benefit because we actually see less stress for our captains so they welcome that they can that can actually use MSCN's tools that are developed for the maritime industry in terms of tackling corruption and last I just want to mention that yeah and I'll speak about the reporting but governments they can still not be official members of MACN but it's I mean they serve as such an instrumental part of our collective action program And I think one of the successes for MSCN has been that we've been able to tap into the government's agenda. What is important for them? Is it trade flows? Is it ease of doing business? I think that's just important to say that we don't name and shame countries because technically we want these governments to come on board and work with us in finding solutions. So I just think that's an important element that if there are concerns of how do you actually work with countries This is actually our methodology, and we've been able to implement that methodology in many countries now uh, across the globe. For our reporting mechanism, I think it's extremely important to say that if you are a member or non-member, it doesn't matter. You can report into our website. This data just shows that there is a systemic issue. You are anonymous when you're reporting it in. You only report the demands. We use that both in conversations such as we've done in the past with international with AMO and other bodies, but we also use that to bring the subject forward to national governments. So companies should and are really strongly encouraged to report into MACN because this data will definitely help the shipping industry. I might just want to give Vivek a chance to comment on the CFAR angle because he's actually quite involved in the reporting aspect of MACN. 
if that's okay. Just if I may, it's, it's fantastic news to hear that there is now a repository for these sorts of uh, reports and these this information. Back again, I'm harking back to my, my time at sea. One humorous story that comes to my mind was we were trading this one time to a particularly religious country around the world. I wasn't in the country or the religion, but it transpired that we'd failed to put our collection of National Geographical magazines into the bondage store. And they, the local regulator took a very dim view of this because that was construed to be pornography because they had African tribes within the National Geographical magazine and, and the ways of life and all that kind of thing. And actually we had to, in order to avoid a fine and a delay, we had to provide a facilitation payment by way of cigarettes and, and, and alcohol of course, alcohol was banned in the country as well, but that was overlooked as a consequence of our indiscretion by failing to bond our national collection of National Geographical magazines. But yeah, just if you want to just give us some final comments, that was a sort of, I could never really get my head around Vivek, but I'm sure you've been there as well. Yeah, if you'd just like to round up with a final comment for our listeners, Vivek. Yeah, thank you. And I think what I would like to add here is, uh, and also being a seafarer myself at that time, we never had anything like MSCN or we did have support depending on the company that you work for. But what I would like to quickly add here, a couple of things very quickly. Collective action very much means seafarers are an integral part of it. All that means is that you're now able to say no to any official that is demanding such things from them. And in some cases, you can also escalate them. So definitely that is the integral part of being in the collective action. And, and then the other thing I would say is that all members, MSN members, vessels, when they call a particular port, if they have said no earlier and the one calling after will say no, this consistency will work, which means that we hear captain saying, sorry, there's an MSN member vessel, we can't give you anything. And then we have seen examples where the officials saying, okay, we, we won't bother with this particular ship, we'll probably find someone else who we can, who can give us something. So the consistency is also very it could be in the form of showing posters in, in strategic locations on board when the master has an interaction with the official. He or she can easily show a document that clearly identifies a company policy or an MICN principle that they're following. So there is a choice today for, for seafarers and masters where they can say no to such practices, but also escalate some of them. So I would leave, I leave you with that note that there is a choice that you can take today. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. And that's leaving us on a note of a high level of encouragement, certainly for the masters and crew at sea today. And I'm sure they're very uh, welcome of the support that your organization and other organizations such as Control Risks, when contracted to assist, can provide um, that help anywhere around the world. So it leaves me just to say on behalf of our listeners, uh, thank you to Cecilia, thank you to Vivek and John. Your contributions have been most appreciated. And we wish you all, all the best in everything you do. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.com.
shoreline.bm today.